This is Bonjour Chai, the Hunka Hunka Burning Parliament Edition. I'm Avi Fallingwald in Montreal, and I'm here with Phoebe Maltzbovi in Toronto. We are your Frozen Chosen. On today's program, it is a post-Yom Kippur Repentance Fest. We talk about what happens at Kol Nidre in Dizengoff Square, and the Speaker of Parliament does Teshuva. We'll talk to David Frum about the scandal involving a 98-year-old Nazi and the embarrassment it has caused for Canada, and more importantly, for Ukraine. Phoebe, how's it going? All right, Avi, how are you doing? Doing okay. You know, we're uh, recovering from the whole, like, day in shul. Um, it's like the, the whole day after what you eat and how you eat, uh, I find, is like a, throws you for a loop because you're just, you're theoretically want to stuff anything into your face, but then that's not always a good thing either. <laughs> wow. I feel I, like I've fasted if it's been like two hours. So I, my, I applaud yeah. I applaud the observance. Yeah, um, I. Uh, I don't do the the what is it called that the the tech bros do, where they optimize and they like don't eat for a while, like sixteen hour fasts, something like that. Intermittent fasting. Thank you. That's the word. Yeah. That's yeah. It. So you it you intermittently fasted for for religion for twenty five hours. Yeah, perfectly. And yeah. then I went to a kosher restaurant and I was disappointed again. Oh no! What was disappointing it about it? It's kosher restaurants. They can never really like. This but what do you, but if you're only eating it. at if you're only eating in kosher restaurants, so I'll tell you, you, it's have, not even the what's food your necessarily. Means of comparison. Okay. So here's this is a restaurant who I shall not name, but okay. uh, is called something that doesn't exist in any language that it purports to exist in. Right? It is okay. not a word in English, French, or Italian, even though it's Italian food and it's trying to be Frenchish and like the word. I'm not going to go there, but if you know, you know what I'm talking about, um, and. They have like the Instagram wall with the fake ivy and the neon like lettering that says good vibes only that are designed so, for pictures. Well, welcome to 2008 or maybe, yeah, no, maybe like, like 2011. That. Yeah. For, but like, yeah. why do I need my dinner interrupted four times for the whole restaurant's lights to go down and the birthday song to go up and like sparklers to come out for somebody's birthday, right? Singing waiters, maybe, but like literally the whole restaurant, just everybody has to start paying attention to the one table that's having a birthday. This happened four times during my dinner last night. And I that think that that's unacceptable. Absolutely zero times during my dinner last night. <laughs> what? Because we had chicken at home. Yeah. But like, this is not about <laughs> yeah. like the food itself. This is even beyond the food. Like, why are yes, you? Yes. Yes. Like, not acceptable. Wow. Wow. That's. I don't know. I don't know what that's a case for, whether it's for eating in, for... Um, Kosher yeah. restaurants, do better, please. <laughs> well, I spent my high holiday holiday doing um, non-CJN work because that's that's what you do if you're secular and you have um, too many projects going is you mm-hmm. work on your book on Yom Kippur. So I, I researched uh, straight women some more. Um, yeah, <laughs> that that line can go in so many different directions. <laughs> it does. Um, it does. It sounds. It sounds a lot more exciting than it was. Although it's 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 exciting in in its way in its way. Um, but yeah, we have some exciting stories from yeah, the so Jewish world. Today. Let's talk about this exciting uh, Yom Kippur in Tel Aviv. So Tel Aviv is, of course, the the other big city, the one that is the secular sibling to the religious Jerusalem, as many people like to put it out point out, um, and. They 
had a, a Kol Nidre service and then an Eila service at the conclusion of Yom Kippur in Dizengoff Square, which is like the center of the city. It's exactly where, where stuff has happening. Uh, and we'll, fight... we'll confirm I have been to it. Yes. <laughs> uh, fights broke out <laughs> uh, during Yom Kippur Eve at Kol Nidre and again at Neila uh, because people tried to set up barriers in Dizengoff Square to make the service gender segregated. And this was despite the fact that the courts ruled against this. They said it was unlawful. There were many appeals to change this ruling up to like the day of. Wait, sorry. Like, so so Arabian to be clear, which is the court? What was the courts? The court the said court you said cannot they... put these barriers up. Okay, I see. Right. And they did or they attempted to and uh, anyways. And, you know, there's all these people denouncing the violence. Netanyahu, quote, like here, I'll quote from Netanyahu. The people of Israel wanted to unite on Yom Kippur in prayer for forgiveness and unity. To our surprise in the Jewish nation on the holiest Jewish day, left-wing protesters rioted against Jews as they prayed. It seems that there are no limits, no norms, and there is no exception from hatred for the left-wing extremists. I, like most of Israel's citizens, reject this. There is no room for such violent behavior among us. All right, like I, I don't understand where Netanyahu is coming from this because a, it is the law, right? They went to court and they said, "Can we do this?" And they said, "No, you cannot." And they went and did it anyways. What did they expect would happen, right? And of course, people are going to get angry about this. And when people react violently on the right to what goes on at the Kotel, right at the Western Wall. Um, on Rosh Chodesh, on any other day when women are trying to do things that are observed, that are like a religious act, just not an orthodox religious act, they are violent and nobody screams out against them in the same way, especially not from the government. And I'm like, you're the ones that are fomenting this type of anger and you expect everybody to just roll over and take it. And I just like, I'm so bothered by this. Well, so my feeling is that men and women should be separated by basically like they should sort of replicate the Western Wall and put it between men and women in all contexts in the world. Mm-hmm. And no, um, I don't, yeah, I don't know what to, I don't sure. know what to add. I don't know what I have to, I'm just kidding. Yeah, I, I don't know what to add. I mean, I obviously, you know, unrest and violence is always upsetting. I also don't think um, making spaces, you know, gender segregated that legally aren't supposed to be um makes any sense yeah and yeah but i also think this i think this this i mean when i look at a big picture it does start to seem as if israel's just gonna kind of go with the most religious and the less religious people are gonna kind of either leave or just either have to become religious or i don't know it just it seems like that's just kind of where things are headed I mean, I'm hoping not, and I'm hoping that the the people that are pushing back against this actually are victorious. Um, I, the question that I have and that, that I'm trying to figure wrap my head around is how do we create some sort of a coexistence? How do we create spaces where people can do this? And, you know, if the government is sponsoring religious services, they should be able to sponsor religious services for all. And if there's enough people that want a place with gender segregation— they should be able to create it. Um, but how do you balance these two? Right. In this case, I think that there was there's no discussion, right? There was no uh, legal way for these people to do it. They try to do it anyways. And they're trying to enforce their idea of what religion is supposed to be on a public that doesn't want it. And rightfully so, there was a pushback. Um, but 
in theory, if this was a nicer, if they went and said, hey, we'd like to do this, we don't want violence, and we want to coexist with you, and we recognize your right to have your non-gender segregated services, we want ours, um, does the government just go and say that it's it's the opposite of, you know, separation of church and state, but the, the state takes care of all religions or all religious forms of expression? Are there limits to that? Um, you know, I, I'm not sure where that goes, but I think that there's an open question there as to how we make that work. Yeah, I don't even know how to begin. I mean, I think the problem is certainly, um, yeah, I mean, I guess this would be my secular bias, but it seems like if you are very religious to the and, and you want Israel to be a very religious place along, you know, your definitions of not you, Avi, but if you are somebody who wants this, I don't think you are seeing this in that sort of like liberal democracy type framework of like, but everybody should be able to do what they want to do. Like, I think yep. you just want Israel to be the thing you want it to be. And you just want to take all those victories wherever you get them. And whether that means a legal victory or just kind of claiming the space and having, you know, having it be as you want it. So I guess I just, I don't really see yeah. there being much incentive for like, I agree with you that ideally, you know, people should coexist. That's nice. But yeah, yeah it seems, it doesn't seem like a, a part of the world with a lot of, you know, calm coexistence happening generally. And uh, yeah, yeah. I think I think that anybody who really insists on their form of religion being the only form that is practiced in public has a deep insecurity about their relationship with God and that they need other people to say, yes, of course, this is the only way that one can practice. And uh, that's that's a little sad and disturbing, too. Yep. Yep. Anyways. I don't know. I like Tel Aviv, though. Nice place. I, I wish yes. I were there right now. <laughs> Let us move on to the more local Yom Kippur scandal. Um, mm -hmm. The Speaker of the House <laughs> has resigned um, because of uh, a gaffe with, involving somebody named Yaroslav Hunka, who is a 98-year-old Ukrainian uh, from northern Ontario. Ukrainian-Canadian. Ukrainian-Canadian. Yes, 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 there. Um, yes, he was honored at Parliament uh, <laughs> at, during uh, the speech given by Vladimir Zelensky. He nobly, he nobly fought the Soviets during World War II. That's going to become one of the great Canadian euphemisms, along with like <laughs> ethnics with money, right? Nobly fighting oh, the Soviets. Boy. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. So you know what? Yeah, uh, let's go to our interview with David Frum right after we hear from our sponsor. Are you in the market for a new watch or a special piece of jewelry? Are you looking for the perfect engagement ring to pop the question? Atelier Lou has all this and more. Eric and the team at Atelier Lou can craft a piece for you, or you can select from some of the exclusive designers that they offer. From a simple bangle to a statement necklace, Atelier Lou can make you or your loved ones sparkle. Located in the heart of Westmount in Montreal or online at atelierlou.com, visit Atelier Lou for your next watch or jewelry purchase. And when you do, make sure to use promo code BON18 for 10% off your next purchase. That's atelierlou.com. We are here with David Frum. Thank you for coming on, David. Uh, for, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, so just before we get into it, David, you are the senior editor at The Atlantic. You're an MSNBC contributor. I'm on, I'm on MSNBC a lot, but I'm not a contributor, which is a okay. contractual status that I... I, I okay. You're the author of uh, 10 books, last yeah. time I checked, and uh, you're a speechwriter for George W. Bush. Uh, you were born in Toronto. You're the son of Barbara Frum, prominent Canadian journalist, and the brother of Canadian Senator Linda Frum. Welcome to Bonjour Chai. 
Thank you. So we are here to discuss uh, the current debacle in the House of Commons. Uh, there is always a debacle, and this is the current one where Anthony Rota uh, stepped down as Speaker of the House um, because the egg was on his face for inviting Yaroslav Hunka, a 98-year-old uh individual who turns out was actually fighting for the Nazis instead of the whitewashed way in which he was presented as somebody who was a freedom fighter for Ukraine against the Soviets. What do we uh, what do we make of this? Is this, this is something um, so I should just say I became Canadian a week like a week and a half ago or two weeks ago. So I'm I want somebody who knows what's happening to explain the significance of what just happened. All right. Well, well, let's let's talk about what what this means here. Here's my principal conclusion from this incident. And it is the same as my conclusion from the um, shocking recent stories about um, the Indian assassination, the Indian government's assassination uh, of a Sikh extremist on uh, Canadian territory. And I think it relates also to the recent stories about Chinese influence in Canada. Mm -hmm. uh, Canada, the Canadian government, people in Canadian politics do not have a national security culture. They always think of everything to do with the external world in terms of local ethnic politics. So you've got somebody in your district who are your constituency, who belongs to a local ethnic group uh, whose votes you want. You do not ask too many questions that affect anything outside your constituency. And uh, in, in the same way that Canada has looked the other way from Sikh extremism on Canadian soil, because the, the question that is uppermost in Canadian politicians' minds always is, do I have a lot of Sikhs in my district? If, if so, then I, I want their votes and I don't ask too many questions. Um, if you discover that the Chinese state is uh, acting in certain ways within um, your Chinese communities, and they are, of course, there's more than one. Again, the, the way the Canadian politicians tend to think about this is they balance the domestic ethnic political calculus, and they don't think seriously about, um, uh, about the internal ramifications. The loser here, the big loser from this story is not Canada. Canada's Fine. Everyone knows can, the Canadian people don't support Nazis. It was it was an obvious you know misunderstanding, a mistake, and we all I think understand that even the Speaker of the House, as sloppy and careless as he was, doesn't have Nazi sympathies. He just didn't think hard enough. The real loser here is one of the world's most hunted men, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, who came to Canada as a guest of Canada, and was told that this event would not only bring material benefit to his invaded nation, but would reflect credit on the people of Ukraine, uh, that, that Canada would honor him in a way that did justice to his important cause as a hero of democracy and as a symbol of the reconciliation of the sometimes difficult relationship between uh, majority Ukrainians and the Ukrainian Jewish minority. And instead, Canada embarrassed him. And the reason Canada embarrassed him was because no one took this visit, or not no one, but because this visit was not taken seriously enough from every point of view to outweigh somebody's domestic, local political calculus. So could I ask something about specifically what would have embarrassed him? I mean, there's the whole, the false accusation that modern day Ukrainians are Nazis that, you know, I mean, I'm not, I'm no geopolitical expert here, but Putin's accusation, right? So isn't that sort of a level here of what's going on and why this is embarrassing right. um, to Zelensky? Ukraine has been for hundreds of years, a war torn place. A, divided, a country divided by language, by, by religion, on a very flat piece of land, very vulnerable to its more powerful neighbors. Um, and the Ukrainian destiny has often been quite a tragic one. And uh, so in two world wars, Ukraine was torn apart. And you people who we would all now regard as Ukrainian often found themselves on opposite sides of a quarrel. And a quarrel fought with merciless 
merciless methods. Um, and that dark history has often been used by communists and now by Russian nationalists against the aspirations to build a democratic liberal society in Ukraine. And the miracle of recent Ukrainian history, and especially of the extraordinary spirit that that country has shown in this war, and, express, and, and again, the extraordinary leadership of the Jewish-Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, has been to say, we are building not just a new country, but a new interpretation of what this, of what the history of this country is. And this is an achievement that we've seen all through Europe, um, through Western Europe, through the countries of the European Union that all have dark pasts pertaining to Jews, pertaining to others, and that have built since 1945, a new kind of political culture and a new identity. And Ukraine got its chance since 1991, and it's been put to the acid test in this war, and it has overwhelmingly vindicated every hope that everybody would have for what this country is. So to in, in, invite the president of this country, the Jewish president of this country, to Canada, a country that has been such a receiving place for Ukrainians of all types, from the worst to the best, and then to slap them in the face, uh, it has to hurt. And the reason of the slap is not because anyone meant to do anything bad. Uh, it was because when push came to shove, Canadian politicians think, Ethnic politics in my district matters more than Canada's standing in the world. I, this may seem a little a little out there, but I'm thinking about this story from Peel, you know, local Toronto area story of the a school library, I believe, getting rid of all books from before 2008, and then I guess reinstating the books from before 2008. And I was wondering, like, what role you think sort of just ignorance of history more broadly, and it, just a general sense that that things don't matter if they didn't happen extremely recently. Does that have anything to do with this or is it? One of the things that um, the age of social media has helped us understand is that dumb things happen all over the world, all over the, all the time. And one of my um, rules for being a good user of social media is if something happens involving someone you had never heard of before and it's bad, don't get upset because it's not different from before the age of social media. It's just that before the age of social media, you would never have heard that this person you've never heard of in this place far away from you has done something dumb. Uh, what was different about this incident is, again, if, if this had been any other day in Canadian politics and this incident had happened, you'd say, well, that was stupid. That was careless. That was sloppy. Oh, well, you know, um, maybe they'll have a better day tomorrow. And they do dumb, th dumb things happen in politics all the time. It was, the, it was because of the occasion and who the visitor was and what Canada owed to this person in this desperate struggle. Um, that's why it, it, it stings so much. Again, no, I, I don't think anyone thinks, no one in the world thinks that the Canadian parliament is soft on Nazis or that this speaker, this poor, unfortunate speaker, was, was, is soft on Nazis. I don't think anybody thinks that. Oh. What they think is that they were... I think, I think some Jewish, major Jewish organizations like to think that because they were so up in arms about this. And Thank you, Avi. Yes, really I, I, have this this. I have seen this. I have seen this And yeah. this is my question, actually. So, you know, I, I love this idea of, like, Canada is basically Tip O'Neill's wet dream of, like, what politics should be, right? And, uh, you know, whatever, you, how are you going to say it? And at the end of the day, we nobody's going to say that they were wrong to necessarily call this thing out. But how should it possibly have happened if every major Jewish organization that thinks that this is the worst thing ever and that is using this to like put shame to the Canadian government for harboring anti-Semitic sympathies, for harboring Nazi sympathies, whatever we're going to say, um, 
but they also want U Ukraine to have a wonderful country and for things to work out. And they're heralding Zelensky as a hero. How do you possibly move this forward, move these both agendas in a way that doesn't embarrass Zelensky, but also gets your thing across? And I actually think that maybe they should have waited a couple of days. Maybe they should have done this a little quieter so that the hubbub dies down in, yeah. you know, and they're able to say, yes, we understood that this was a mistake, but we don't want it to like, you know, show up like negatively against Zelensky. Yeah. Well, I, I, I would say, I think one of the things, um, my stricture about the parochialism of um, Canadian political mm -hmm. culture applies to Canadian Jewish organizations too, of course, who are Canadians like anybody else and have all the good points and bad points of their fellow Canadians. Um, and I strongly urge everyone to see this, not in a context of what they, of what they think about Jews in Canada, but, in the in a context that re reflects the government's ethnic politics approach to the sea question, ethnic politics approach to the Chinese, th 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 there have been a series of these incidents. That's the frame it seems to me in which this should go. Um, that uh, I mean, the Indian government apparently has done this terrible thing of carrying out a murder on Canadian soil, and it's very what they have done is very ominous because. There are important Sikh communities, not only in Canada, but in the United Kingdom and in California. And it does look like the Indian government, if the accusations are true, emphasize that, if the accusation looks like they tested this new method in the place where they thought they could most get away with it to see what would happen if we did a similar thing in Britain, what would happen if we did a similar thing in Southern California. Um, so, but they, the Indians do have, as terrible as what they did is, they do have a complaint, which is that Canada has looked away from extremism on its soil because of domestic political considerations in the same way that Canada looked away from Chinese interference in Canadian elections and the Canadian government did for domestic political considerations. I, I see these parallels, but I guess I'm just wondering, like, just sort of to maybe build a little on what Avi was saying, it does seem like at a moment in North American Jewish culture, I would even say English language Jewish society where you know, there's just so, so much coverage of anti-Semitism to the point of like some newspaper in the UK changed its logo. And it's like, does that look a little bit like a Nazi logo? You know what I mean? Like that's sort of the level of the discourse. It seems like there are maybe more, there's maybe more than one thing going on here. It just seems like it's a lot to ask of a, yeah. of well, a Jewish community that's in the mood of seeing swastikas where there aren't any, if that makes sense. Well, that's when exactly like what a I literal, want the Jewish yeah, community yeah. to do, is to yeah. take that step back and to realize that yeah. there's complexity. But, but, then, but then the point is, like, then what do you do in a case where there's, like, a, a literal Nazi? Yeah. I mean, it's... Yeah. yeah. So, so look, um, people are going to react as, as they react. Um, and Jewish communities are under global pressure. Um, and uh, there is... And I think it's all more because of social media, we all see it. It comes to your phone. It's not just something um, you read about on a piece of paper that you can, you can put down and leave on the subway seat. Um, it, it's very intimate and close. Uh, I, I would say though, that this, I don't, I don't think this is the, the motives here. And I may, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think the motives here reflected a lack of regard uh, by anyone in the parliament or by anyone in the prime minister's office. Uh, for the interests and concerns of the Jewish community, not in this incident. What they did reflect is a lack of seriousness um, about about and, other things. And yet the Jewish community reacts as if, like, Trudeau himself is a Nazi. Well, some right? Jewish or, or community. I'm saying, like, this is yeah, the, the, I mean, the rhetoric that comes out as a result yeah. of this is so problematic that, like, and, and, you know, to me, the 
lessons of Yom Kippur showed out exactly what happened here, right? There was deed. There was, I'm sorry. I know exactly what I did was wrong. There was no, I don't know what I did, but I'm resigning anyways. He resigned. The action is there. Um, unfortunately, you can't walk back this history. And like you said, Zelensky still has egg on his face, but we don't let anybody take the time for the proper action to happen. And we just assume the worst is, is going to be. This is anti-Semitism. This is the worst kind. This is deliberate. And we, you know, we go up in arms about it and it's a problem. Right? Well, I think and, well, I've seen, I haven't just seen that. I've also seen some sort of like, this is ignorance. This is a sign that there isn't enough education. Um, so like in Marsha Lederman's um, op-ed about this, she was basically saying like, this is a sign that, that people need to be more informed about history. David, go ahead. Yeah. Well, first, this is history that I have to say, this is um, the grade seven exam. Um, so look, the, the, the speaker, when he introduced the visitor, um, read um, uh, that this is a man who fought for Ukrainian independence against the Russians during World War II. Now, really, you really have to have watched only half an hour of a World War II documentary to say, I think I need some follow-up questions. <laughs> um, so that, that's, 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 not a, that's not an obscure piece of history. All of this said, I, I want to talk about the Jewish community and Justin Trudeau. Um, the, the, uh, Jews do have uh, a beef with Justin Trudeau and the Trudeau government, but the, the, we need to be clear about what the beef is. The beef is that Justin Trudeau, especially in the early part of his administration, approached Israel and the Middle East in exactly the same spirit as he approached the Sikh question and the Chinese question and now this Ukraine question as a matter of domestic political nose counting. That the government spent a lot of time weighing, uh, you know, Lebanese in Montreal, Jews in Toronto, um, whose votes are arranged in ways that are more, and are we more uh, concerned about tipping seats away from the NDP or the Bloc Québécois in Montreal or tipping seats away from the conservatives in the greater GTA? And the idea that that's not how you should think about these problems is not just a matter, I mean, no politician can ever escape politics, but these global questions are not to be decided exclusively on the basis of the relative voting profiles of Lebanese and Jewish communities. That's, and, and that is exactly how the Trudeau government, it seems to me, and Trudeau the politician, it seems to me, approached these questions. It, he was never interested in the underlying merits of the issue. He was making, it was always domestic politics. And Canada is an important country with a huge, I mean, Canada's not a military major power, but it's a financial and economic major power. Um, it's globally connected through these people to people ties. Uh, it just needs politicians who are less local. Yeah, the uh, the line, I think before this blew up, I remember reading this, it may have been in Monocle with Tyler Brule, but I might be completely off base, but uh, somebody mentioned, you mentioned that the only foreign policy that Canada cares about is Western Europe because it really sees itself as a as like a direct descendant of that, and then everything else is completely blocked off. Um, and I think that that's true within the Jewish community as well. I think that like the only issue that matters is whether Israel is going to be affected by the current government. And as soon as something happens that is minorly problematic for Israel, the uh, rest of the like entire region and stability and peace goes out the window because this minor thing happened and this is problematic for the way that Israel, you know, is going to be perceived or Israel's actions are going to happen. And, and that has to change. Yes. Well, look, that creates a lot of incentives and that uh, if the Jews are parochial about these things, that creates some incentives for bad actors. And let me just point to one. So the, the, um, the Saudi state is right, um, has, which has been again, committed in a murder on foreign soil. It killed a U.S. green, not a U.S. citizen, but a U.S. green card holder. And it didn't do it on U.S. soil, but it lured him to 
Istanbul and murdered him there. The human rights abuses in Saudi Arabia are getting worse and worse. They're opening fire on people uh, crossing the border from Yemen. Um, and they now look like they are uh, seeking a nuclear weapon. And the Saudi state has this idea that the way we get permission to do these things that are really in nobody's interest is by smoothing diplomatic relations with Israel and getting the global Jewish community to be our alibi providers. And uh, look, I, we all get excited. It moves me that there's an, as you and I speak, that there's an Israeli tourism minister in Saudi Arabia, the first visit by um, an Israeli cabinet minister to Saudi, at least the first publicly declared one. Um, and the end of this quarrel would be a wonderful thing. And bringing Israel and Saudi Arabia to diplomatic relations would be a wonderful thing. But be aware what the, how the Saudis are thinking about this. It's not so much for Israel's sake, but they're trying to align Jewish communities to be their spokespeople in capitals like Ottawa, like Washington. And, and that's not necessarily something that you want to be levered into doing, um, just because of the, the bilateral relationship, when there are other concerns, nuclear weapons in the Middle East, Saudi Arabia's human rights record. So what's your prescription for the establishment Jewish community in Canada when it comes to this issue or whatever other issues we've been talking about today? Well, look, I, I have no um, criticisms to make. I, I, I think one thing that um, every, everybody needs to take on board, I, I had a relative now deceased who uh, worked on the Israeli nuclear weapons program. And when I saw him shortly before his death at a great age and laden with honors, he said, if I could communicate to the people of Israel one thing, I wish I could communicate to them how secure they are. And he, he'd given his life to making sure that Israel has a more effective deterrent than the United Kingdom does. Um, so uh, that, you know, that's not the answer to every problem, but it's certainly an answer to the existential problems. So uh, I think um, it's hard to advise Jews to ever feel secure because, as I often joke, Jews are genetically selected for pessimism. Because at every period in Jewish history, the pessimists left, the optimists stayed. The pessimists have grandchildren, the optimists don't. <laughs> you do that for enough generation, and you become, you become a very pessimistic people. That said, that the Jewish position in Canada is a secure one. Um, and that means that you can, you can think a little bit more broadly, and, and you can think a little bit more globally. Um, and... And in a case like, like this, to understand that, I think there are something like 300,000 Jews live in Ukraine. Um, and uh, I have seen um, the extraordinary work of Jewish organizations in Ukraine to feed and clothe elderly and impoverished members of that community. Th that's your concern too. It, not only Israel, but also Jews all around the world, and also peace and security all around the world. Because peace and, um, a world of violence, a world of authoritarianism is not a comfortable world for Jews. I think it's interesting just in light of um, sort of the rise of identity politics um, more broadly. I think some of this is not, I mean, it connects to a longer Jewish history, but also this idea of sort of Jews taking our own place in the kind of lineup of, you know, identity groups, right? So some of it, I think, is Jews embracing a certain style, a certain tone of identity politics in North America, especially um just in keeping with other groups. So yeah. um, I think that's maybe another yeah. layer but, to but, this. But that style of politics is not healthy for the people who practice it. Um, because Oh, I, it, I wasn't, say, I wasn't yeah. saying it was. I'm <laughs> just observing. Because, it, yeah. Um, if you create incentives where they say the way to get power um, is to be uh, extremely thin-skinned, 
to react to everything as if it's the end of the world. You, that's a kind of like self, you're building a feedback mechanism where you damage your own mental health as a way of, and your own collective mental health as a way to gain collective political power. And it's not clear to me that the game, that game is, is worth, worth the candle. And I, I would say, um, especially about these, these ways of, of, uh, of communicating that you can, even if they start tactical, people come to believe in them, believe in them as, as ends in themselves. And Jewish communities have real problems. I don't want to minimize that at all. And there are real dangers and there, there, there are people with dangerous weapons who are trying, uh, as individuals, as parts of terrorist groups, as parts of states are hostile to, to Jews and are trying to do harm. But I, um, I, I think there's, there's also that, that famous Hillel triptych that we were all taught about if I'm only for myself, I'm, uh, that, you know, that since the founding of the state of Israel, that the Jews have tended to put the emphasis of, of if, if, you know, if not, if I'm not for myself, who will be for me? True. But also if I am only for myself, what am I? Well, I'll go one step further and say, if not now, when? And you can't raise money by by taking a breath and seeing what it is or by discussing the complexity. And the the, the mode that we have shifted into is really now, 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 now. And uh, it works for organizations. It works on fundraising levels. It works at an identity level. But it really doesn't work, you know, in the long lens of history. Yes. Look, I think the speaker did need to resign um, because he made the mistake. Um, and that, that doesn't mean that he's going to be hit with rocks in the public square, but he, you know, and it's a parliamentary system. Resignation is the recognized remedy mm-hmm. um, for a, a ministerial level mistake. And he was acting here like a ministerial person. The government deserves uh, to take some uh, reputational damage because, I mean, it really can't be true. The, the excuse the government is offering is if the speaker says, here's my guest, it's not their problem. Oh, the speaker says, here's my guest, Lee Harvey Oswald, and I want to bring him into the parliamentary press gallery. No, into the parliamentary gallery. No. <laughs> You've got the most hunted man on the planet. Um, there have to be sweeps. There has to be a scrutiny of every guest to know, um, is there anything here that can go wrong? You have to think like, you know, uh, your counterparts would think in the Westminster Parliament and Congress, like a major country, um, not be so amateur. That that said, as you say, it this can also, it needs to be remembered that, that the primary victim here, the primary sufferer is not anyone in Canada. It is President Zelensky. David Frum, thank you so much for being on Bonjour Chai. Please come back anytime. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. That was really an interesting conversation with David Frum. I was honored, honored with you, um, now that I'm Canadian, to uh, chat with him about this. Uh, but yeah, I, I still have so many thoughts about this really, really out there story. Um, and I, I mean, they're, they're sort of in a few places. I mean, one is, I, I guess I wish we had talked a little bit more about just this, the fact that Putin gives as his obviously ridiculous pretext for the war that Ukraine, a country with a Jewish leader, is a Nazi state. I feel like there's something like that, I think, gets to the core of why this is all so awkward, because it seems to somebody, and this gets to the next point I was going to make about it, but it seems to somebody who's a bit historically ignorant and whose information comes from social media posts that they saw in the last week as if, aha, this is like some sort of gotcha that Ukraine is actually Nazi, right? That's how it's going to seem to somebody who's not that, you know, informed, right? So that's one part of it. But the other is just that I'm wondering more broadly 
how informed the average person is at this point. And there's just like, I'm wondering, like I hear, you know, nobly fought the Soviets during World War II. And I know what that's implying. But I just feel like, does everybody? And I mean, I know it's taught in school, but eh, like to me, this just seems like something that is not like I've seen the sorts of things people tweet or whatever. And I don't think everybody does have that level of um, civics knowledge. I don't know. What do you think? I, I, you know, this goes back to something I've thought about for a long time. I've mentioned it several times here on the show is that like at the end of the day, there are many, many incredibly important special interest groups that each have very valid things that need to be taught to the general public. And we don't often have the time to you know, get it all across. I was talking to a friend of mine who's a head of school uh, here in Montreal. And we were talking about this idea of the like Ontario has now a unit of Holocaust education. I I believe it's mandatory or they were trying to make it mandatory. Yes, but I'm not talking about the Holocaust. I'm talking about World War II or the Second World War. Yeah, It's just an example. And he was like, sure, let's make a mandatory unit on that. But where are you taking it away from? What eight hours of math or English, or language instruction, or gym, are you taking this away from? Because there's so much to get done, and there's only so many hours in the day, and teachers are already stretched thin on covering all the material that they already have to cover, right? And again, I'm I'm not saying that people should know about this, and you're 100% right that at the end of the day, if somebody hears, you know, bravely fought the Soviets, they should know what that means. But there, at some point, how much is going to get learned? How much is going to get taught? I watched that film, Bros. Did you hear about this film with Billy Eichner? It's like a gay rom-com. Yes, I did hear about it. And it was kind of funny. It was kind of interesting. And he's like the head of this LGBTQ plus museum that's slated to open in New York. It's clearly fictional. And he's talking about how they don't. nobody knows about this stuff. Nobody knows about this part of gay history. Nobody knows about that part of gay history. I'm like... Very, very important. I wish I did know more of the stuff that you're talking about, but I wish also that other people knew more about the history that I'm talking about. And so, yes, I, I, I think your point is is very well taken, that this is about World War II and not just about the Holocaust. But at, at what point do we say there's so much information and what's going to give up? What are we giving up in exchange? Sure. I mean, I think I think that I guess what I'm getting at is like the the basic facts of who was in the second in world the war. war yes yes in the war that's not a niche jewish thing i mean it, it's obviously very specifically relevant to jews and you know i who who are we to say on bonjour high that obviously the holocaust is you know a very central fact of jewish history and world history the second world war was not just that and i think in terms of what people learn in school i think you know this isn't like just yeah i don't know so, but i guess what i am wondering also and this is maybe me being extremely pessimistic about things is is it definitely like self-evident to everybody who you know in today's world that the nazis were the bad guys or is not like if they don't even understand what the nazis were you know what i mean i think that's this problem is where i think there's this kind of like nazi has become something people call the people they don't like and it often becomes kind of disconnected from the historical 
reality uh, precisely because entirely. no i think i think I, a lot you know, of people I, don't know who they were so there's this story out of ohio um that highlights actually the opposite of what you're saying right the the, the headline says from espn ohio high school coach resigns after team's nazi play call so basically this guy was in uh, uh this is brooklyn high school not brooklyn new york obviously brooklyn um Ohio was playing against a team from Beechwood and Beechwood is 90% Jewish and they just kept uh, doing these plays and calling them the Nazi play run the Nazi play run the Nazi play and people uh, would hear this and were complaining about it and uh, he had to resign because he knows what it means to use the word Nazi I think that at that point there's you know there's still a realization that Nazi has something to do with the Holocaust with World War II and with being anti-Jewish. I know that it's mm-hmm. a generalized term like soup Nazi or, you know, calling somebody a Nazi in, what is it, Rule 34 in, of the internet that uh, that any argument that devolves to some point... Right, will, right, like Godwin, yes. Yeah, God, yeah. So um, I don't think the Nazi is quite there yet, but I think that the basic facts of World War II are starting to be lost. I mean, how many people know who fought in World War One? Right. If if you had to name there a was one, there on was a sides. there was there was a there was a war before World War Two. Apparently, uh, apparently. Well, you know what? I only really learned about it in grad school, and that sounds ridiculous. But I mean, I'm sure we had some kind of very basic education about it. In and my think high about school, that. But... It's a 30 year old difference. It's a 30 year difference between World War One and World War Two. And World War One was supposed to be world changing and huge. Yeah, I mean, I I think I think that there's. Um, I guess what I find frustrating sometimes in these conversations, um, and I'm not, uh, to be clear, I'm talking about conversations in the Jewish community and not specifically our conversation just now with David Frum. But what I find frustrating is that there can be a sort of a confusion between like what's malice and what's the very natural ignorance that just comes with time Mm -hmm. and that certain events just are longer away than they had been and that that's not, you know, people caring more versus less, but it's just you know, like either something was in your lifespan or it wasn't, you know, and that's not, there's, you you can remember the messages from an event, but it's not going to seem as familiar, you know. Remember that we're coming up close to 80 years after the end of World War II. Um, Right, and there have been a lot of, you know, there were... And for young people today, I mean, like if you were living somewhere like New York City during the pandemic and you saw not that that not that obviously it's the same thing, of course, as a genocide, it is obviously not. But if you're thinking about like bodies and horror and trauma and all of this, there would be something a lot more recent that you might have witnessed personally Mm -hmm. and other wars. You know what I mean? So I think in terms of the like i think it's i think what's going to have to happen with holocaust education is that it's going to have to not sort of take for granted that that's going to be the first reference point that people will always have even jews will always have in terms of something horrible happening if that makes yeah. sense does that make sense I, I have no i'm idea. with you on that one yeah but anyways let's move on to maybe not <laughs> okay <laughs> let's move on to nachas phoebe what's your nachas this week Okay, Avi. Um, my nachos this week is riding a bike. I got a bike um, at the Polish festival, so I, I was. I hope my bike is not extradited to Poland, um, like 
some people might be. Um, yeah, I got a bike at the Polish festival in Roncesvalles, which is the neighborhood I live in. The bike has nothing to do with it being a Polish festival. It's just like there's this big street fair. Um, the bike itself is a Polish kind of a funny either. Story. Uh, the bike itself is apparently Australian, which is kind of random. But okay. um, but the Polish festival is its own kind of story where last year they didn't want to call it the Polish festival. Some people didn't want to call it the Polish festival, but then the name got reinstated and there was a lot of drama about this. But the bike had nothing to do with any of this. The bike was just, um, they were selling these bikes. Apparently, I looked online, apparently the company is like sort of not doing well in Canada or something and is going to rebrand or I don't even know. It's an R-E-I-D, Reed bike. But anyway, they were quite cheap and (laughs) I had not ridden a bike in years and now I have a bike and I do, go around like that a little bit. Do you and like we as you're going down the hill? As, like, <laughs> like, is there glee and joy in your voice as you ride your bike? There's a little bit of glee and there's a little bit of glee and joy. There's a little bit of being honked at um, in traffic and finding it a little terrifying and wondering whether this makes any sense. And I think I'm slowly learning um, where the sort of smaller streets are because just because they're in Toronto, just because there's like a bike draw like painted onto the road doesn't mean there's actually a bike lane. It just means that like drivers remember bikes exist and it doesn't seem to be much more than that. And then they're also in Toronto. So this is a super, I'm going to go really provincial. Sorry. Apologies to David from, but they're in Toronto. There are streetcar tracks, tram tracks, and you really don't want to get your bike stuck in that, but you have to ride kind of between the, the streetcar tracks and the parked cars, which is like, it's it's not a lot of width, and for somebody without a tremendous amount of um, spatial sense, this this was interesting. But it's fun though, and you can get places really fast. And Toronto's like, again, leaning into the provincial. It's not huge; like you could get around a lot of it um, by bike. So this is it's... kind of exciting. So my nafis is to my. Um, it looks like one of these Dutch bikes, you know, like the black bike with the that dips down that style cruiser mm-hmm. Dutch sure. looking bike. Except it's just like not good quality. But anyway, the, the um, Ronsi yeah, so slalom. That's, my nachos. that's your nachos. The Ronsi slalom. <laughs> Absolutely. As opposed to riding in Bathurst and Lawrence, that's the shalom slalom. Um, my nachos. Oh my I'm gonna... <laughs> I don't think I have. I don't think this bike has enough gears to get um, anywhere like that. But yeah. yeah. Um, I'm going to go back to 2006 uh, to one of my favorite films. Uh, it's an Israeli film. Um, called Ushpizin. It's uh, something that I haven't watched in a little while, and I was like, you know what? I have to go back and watch this with my kids because it is a Sukkot film. It's a lovely, lovely film about a uh, childless couple who does not think that they have the means to celebrate Sukkot that year. Um, they come across um, a sukkah that is uh, able, they're able to use and some money that they're able to buy an etrog with, and they have some unexpected visitors, and uh, all sadness and hilarity both ensue at the same time, and it's a wonderful film um, about Haredi life in Jerusalem and how wonderful and pleasing it can be. Um, it stars uh, Shuli Rand, who is now a, a big pop star in Israel, a pop star. He's a musician and singer in Israel um, and his real-life wife um, so that they could actually act together as a Haredi couple. Um, And it's really a heartwarming tale about Sukkot. Uh, I highly recommend you go check it out. Uh, Watch it with your kids even to get a little Sukkot uh, flavor uh, into this week. Um, And uh, I know how much you love Israeli films. uh, Oh, wait, actually, I didn't do the right Mm -hmm. Nahas. I didn't do the right Nahas. Oh, 
Well, you get do, a do-over. Extra do another nachas. <laughs> I'm going to do another nachas. I, I still want to rec- recommend the bike. But what I really want to recommend is if you're finding this story about the 98-year-old Nazi compelling, but feel like what it's missing is, you know... The, romance and the drama? Se- romance, drama, and a sexy Israeli actor. All things okay. benefit from a sexy Israeli actor, in my opinion. What you want to do is go see Eitan Fox's 2004 film, Walk on Water, which is about uh, some a, a Mossad agent played by Lior Ashkenazi, who I once met in person at some screening, and he is everything you could imagine. Um, anyway, he plays a Mossad agent who goes to, he's on this mission to capture this uh, Nazi, right? In Germany, who's like at that point quite elderly, but he has, and he has to befriend the Nazi's uh, gay grandson, who's um, also very nice looking, but no Lior Ashkenazi. Um, and anyway, but then in the process, he falls in love with, of course, um, the Nazi's granddaughter, who is very anti-Nazi herself. Don't worry, this is not any sort of romance novel putting Jews with Nazis. It is not like that. Um, and it's, I, I haven't watched it recently. I watched the trailer just because it, this, um, this story really reminded, the, the real life story reminded me of the cinematic one. Um, and obviously walk on water being, you know, a a religious reference, wrong religion for this podcast, but in any case, definitely a good movie. I'm a big fan of Aten Fox's movies. He actually came to speak once, um, at the NYU speaking freely Hebrew class. This was like a thousand years ago. (laughs) I, uh, I have a friend um, named Aten Fox. That's my Israel. Oh, really? Is it? But it's not the same one. uh, It's not the same one. Is that, is that frustrating for your friend? Uh, I think I asked him about it once, and I think given his living in Midwestern America and speaking <laughs> like basic Hebrew uh, is not really anybody really confuses him for that. Fair enough, fair enough. But definitely, walk on water. Um, Let will us be your thematic viewing for this this week. I will. I will pledge to rewatch that because I haven't watched it in a long time either. Um, you should check out Ushbizin though. Sounds good. Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the week ending September 30th, Sukkot, the Sukkot holidays this weekend. The show is produced and edited by Zach Kaufman. The executive producer for CJN Podcast is Michael Freeman. Our music is by SoCalled. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour, and you can subscribe to the podcast, automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We would love it if you told a friend about Bonjour Chai. It is, as always, one of the best ways we get new listeners. You can always email us with comments at bonjour at thecjn.ca. We read everything. Uh, I just ran into uh, a listener who's written in in the past um, and a loyal listener. I always love running into loyal listeners and I love reading what you guys have to say. So send us emails. And if you see us in the street, come up and say hi. And in order to know who we are, I'm Avi Feingold. And I'm Phoebe Maltz-Bovey. Thank you for joining.